faith and life. For some people, they're parallel roads. They never come into contact with each other. One never influences the other. Yet for some other people, faith and life are more like intersecting roads. Often they're running opposite each other, but where they do intersect, wonderful God moments can be experienced. But yet for just a few, the two roads merge into one, and the results are truly a highway to heaven. What does the road of faith and life look like in your world? We are concluding our quarantine message series this morning, and so um, I want to start off by reading the text that we've been reading for the last several weeks from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And it says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy, without love and unforgiving, slanderous and without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. So over the last several weeks, both on Sundays and then uh, for many of my Wednesday or Thursday podcasts, I've been taking a look at these different qualities and characteristics. And there's one that I, I wasn't intending on speaking on, but as I was kind of uh, going through uh, for my podcast, uh, it kind of jumped out at me. And so I want to talk about a little bit about it this morning, uh, and that is uh, treacherous. It's kind of an interesting term there, um, that, that in the final days, uh, people will be more treacherous, and the, 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 it'll be, uh, it's just not a quality or a characteristic. You don't normally call a person a treacherous person. And so that kind of jumped out at me. So I want to talk about that this morning, and then I'm going to probably spend about two-thirds of the time talking about just this form of godliness, because this is such a big deal in the church today, um, that there's a lot of different churches um, and a bunch of different Christians, but not every church is a true church. Not everyone claiming to be a Christian is really a, a Christian. So let's start with this concept of, of, in the last days, people will be treacherous. How is a person treacherous? Well, a treacherous person is a dangerous person. When I think of the word treacherous, I honestly think of like when you drive and there's a curve ahead and, and they have to warn you ahead of time because if you're going the normal speed limit, when you get to this curve or this turn, uh, you're, you're going to go out of control and crash because it's treacherous. Well, in the same way, people can be treacherous. Once again, I don't know if it's just me. I just don't think of people in those terms, but they can be. And it would be good for us to be aware of who those type people are because the Scripture says that we should avoid them. Uh, we should have nothing to do with such people. Now, what is and how do we identify treacherous people? Well, the first is this. A treacherous person is someone who will stab you in the back. When I think of maybe a treacherous person, I think probably the first thing that comes to my mind is a spy. Um, because a spy, no one really realizes that they're a spy. They, they pretend to be someone that they're not. It was funny, like when I was 
going through high school, I kind of thought I wanted to be a spy. I took three years of Russian in high school. I would have taken four, but my senior year, my Russian teacher went to Harvard and studied for a year. But um, I, I kind of thought that would be cool, right? Um, I don't know if you heard, but like uh, about maybe three weeks ago or so, uh, there's a couple in Hawaii uh, that just got uh, arrested, and they've been spies for Russia for 30 years. Um, they took the names of two babies, Texas babies, that died at birth. They took their names as their own. Um, and the guy served 20 years in the Coast Guard and retired from it. And then he got hired with the Department of Defense. That's a little scary, isn't it? But these are treacherous people. They, they pretend to be normal, everyday people, uh, but in fact, they're not. And in fact, spies can be even doubly treacherous because not only can you be a spy pretending to be someone you're not, there's double agents who really play both sides and, and are spying for both simultaneously, and, and, and people don't even realize it. Well, I thought of another example of a, a treacherous type person, um, someone that, you know, is, is not someone who we think that they are. If you remember back in, in high school literature, uh, Shakespeare, Julius Caesar, and the famous phrase, et tu, Brute? How many of you remember that? And you, Brutus, as well? What's interesting is I, that that kind of thought came to my head as I researched that a little bit this week. Uh, some believe that, that, that not only was Brutus a, a, a good friend of Julius Caesar, but maybe even a son of his. And yet he was one of the ones that was responsible for assassinating Julius Caesar. A treacherous person is someone who pretends to have your back, but then will ultimately stab you in the back. A treacherous person will lie to your face. Now, when you think of this, there's, uh, there's multiple ways in which people lie. There's just like out-and-out out lie, and I, I'm always amazed at how many times we apparently lie a day. Um, it's a crazy amount, but when someone just won't speak the truth to you, you don't really know what truth is, and, and that person is, is, is treacherous. Um, but then there's those people who, who lie in a much more subtle way. They're the people who like, will tell you what you want to hear. Um, I remember when I was in seminary, there was a, um, the church that I worked at, the principal was that way. He was, a, he, was a, he was from Texas. He was a good old Texas boy. And you'd sit there and you'd talk to him. And when you talk to him, it's like he would act like he agreed with you on everything. And you're like, all right, good. We're, you know, we're in agreement. And then like a week or two later, something comes back and bites you in the butt. And it comes from him. And, it's, and you're sitting there thinking, I, I thought we saw this the same way. But he's just that type of person. Maybe they want to be liked. Maybe they don't like conflict or whatever, but they'll tell people what they want to hear. That, that, that's a treacherous person. Someone who gossips is a treacherous person. Uh, we might be the one that, that does it, but if not, we probably have one of our friends that likes to talk about all of our other friends. L let me just warn you, if you've got a friend that likes to talk about all your other friends, guess what they do when you're not there? They talk about you. Such a person is a treacherous person. 
A treacherous person is someone that will convince you to do things that you shouldn't. How many of us have had in the past, or maybe still have in our lives, uh, there's someone that, like, we have in our lives, and we always tend to get in trouble when we're with them. And they're, they're a lot of fun, and, and, and we don't want to, like, lose them as a friend, but let's just face it, they're, they're not necessarily a good influence on us. That's a treacherous person. Maybe when you're around them, you're a little bit more wild than you normally are. Maybe when you're around them, you drink way more than what you normally drink. Maybe you become more superficial. Uh, maybe you join in with them and talking about other people. Uh, maybe when you're around them, faith doesn't have the same priority when you're with them as when you're by yourself or when you're with your other friends. Remember, you know, we are a compilation of our five closest friends in our lives. If you've got someone in your life that's not bringing out the best in you, that person is a, a treacherous person to you. And then the last point on a treacherous person, and then I want to get into uh, something else for the remainder of the, the message is a treacherous person, in fact, if you look up treacherous in, in the dictionary, um, it, one of the definitions, and I like it, is it violates faith pledged. A treacherous person will violate faith pledged. That is, you can't trust a treacherous person. You might think you have an agreement with a treacherous person, but that person will go and go back on that agreement. A, a treacherous person will say that they're going to do something, but then they don't do it. A treacherous person will say they've done something when actually they haven't. A treacherous person doesn't have any honor. Um, they, they'll, they'll, just, they, they'll just lie about things. You know, it, it used to be like, I mean, think about it, like every time you do something legally, one of the things that you have to do is you've got to sign your name to the document. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the fact that long time ago, all people really had was their name. And if you said you're going to do something, that, that you would do it. If you signed your name to something, you know, that, that you were only as good as your name. A, a treacherous person doesn't care about their name. They, they only care about their self-interest. And how people see them or don't see them, it doesn't really matter to them. You know, what, what's interesting, though, is I was working through this whole, like, beware of treacherous people. Honestly, like, spiritually, we're all kind of treacherous before God, aren't we? Especially when you think of this concept, you know, a treacherous person violates faith pledged. I mean, isn't that what we do to God all the time? I mean, God has redeemed us in Christ Jesus. We've been born anew. We're no longer a slave to sin, but yet that battle rages in, our, in us. You know, Paul speaks about it. We spoke about it, I think, last week or the week before. You know, the good that I want to do that I don't do, but the, the evil that I don't want to do that I keep on doing. We ultimately are treacherous people before God, but thank God uh, through Christ Jesus and the blood of Jesus. He forgives us of that. Now, for the remainder of our time this morning, I, I want to hammer home a little bit more on that, that kind of last phrase before uh, Paul says, have nothing to do with these people. And I, it's really, it seems to be a qualifier over everything that we've uh, talked about into this point. That is, there's these qualities and characteristics of these different people that in the last days, this will be much more prominent. But then there's this concept of both them and, and just in general, people will have a form of godliness, but they're not godly. 
You know, in 2 Corinthians 11, we're told this, that Satan, Satan has a form of godliness. And we don't think about this. Like, Scripture says that, that Satan can appear as an angel of light. And what's an angel of light? Well, an angel of light is God. Now, you've heard pastors say that. I've said it. But what's, inter what's interesting, when you actually read that passage, it also says his followers do. So it's not just Satan that has this, like, form of godliness, this form of light, but, but isn't. His followers actually appear to be servants of light, but aren't. That's not talking about, like, the evil, the wicked, the crazy people, like, in the world that are doing all those. It's people who appear to be, but aren't. Well, so these are the people that are intermixed with Christians. There's Christians that are reflections of, of the light of Christ and followers of Christ, but then there's those who, who appear to be but aren't. And then we should say the same in terms of the church. And when I look at the church in this day in, in America and really around the world, I mean, this is a big concern. And this is something that we need to be aware of. So as we kind of conclude out this message series, I need you to understand that um, we don't have to watch out for, for, for the wicked. We will. We don't have to watch out for, for, the, for the evil and for, for the crazy. I mean, for the people that are extreme, we, we know to stay away. But we have to have eyes that, that see those who have a form of godliness but aren't. What does that look like in the church? Well, let's start with the spiritually arrogant. These are the Pharisees. The spiritually arrogant are the Pharisees. The Pharisees, listen, they know the Scripture better than anyone. In many respects, they follow the Scripture better than anyone. They're not living the lives like the sinners are. They're given a tent. They're, they're, they're doing everything that the law requires. They, they know the Scriptures the best. In many respects, they live the Scripture the best. Now, you can make an argument, and it's a true argument, that they, they do the outward stuff, but they lack the love. Well, the lacking the love is they're spiritually arrogant. And this is, this is what we got to be aware of. And this is, this is the danger in the, in the church that there are going to be people who think they're just better than others. There's going to be people who are just certain God speaks to them in a much better and greater way than everyone else. There's going to be people who think that they've got greater insights into really what it means to be a follower of Christ than everyone else. And, and people that, that start doing that stuff and falling into those traps, they, they have a tendency to become spiritually arrogant. Once again, this is the Pharisees. They knew the Scripture the best. They actually lived it out the best. But God warns us that the spiritually arrogant aren't true followers of Him. Look at Matthew 20, 25 to 28. Jesus called them together, that is, his disciples. And he says, you know, you know that it's the rulers of the Gentiles that lord it over them. And it's their high officials that ex exercise authority over them. 
Do you, you hear what he's saying? He's saying that the rulers lord it over, they, they hold it over, they, they, act spirit, they act arrogant to the people that are under them. Jesus says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you, they've got to be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, God himself, came into this world, not to be served, but to serve. And so when we look at people who appear to have a form of godliness, but really aren't, you got to start with the spiritually arrogant. They'd have you believe that they've got it together more than you do. Who falls into this category? Well, a lot of times pastors will. Church workers, elders, leaders in the church. The greater your knowledge is about God, the better you become at living that out. You run in the danger of becoming spiritually arrogant. Another form of godliness in the church that, that we should be aware of and, and avoid is what I've called the hypocrites. This is an interesting one. People will say, you know why I don't go to church? Because everyone there is a hypocrite. You hear that a lot as a pastor. And you know what I always say is, yeah, you're right, they are. But you know what, but I shouldn't have been saying that. Because you know what's the problem with the hypocrite? They pretend to be someone that they're not. If someone wants to say, the reason I don't go to church is they're all sinners there, then you say, yep, absolutely they are. But see, the problem with a hypocrite is a hypocrite, they're able to see everyone else's sin, but not their own. It's that, another form of that spiritual arrogance. You know, a hypocrite is like you can sit there and pick apart other people and you pretend to be someone that, you know, on Sunday when everyone's watching, whatever, but, you know, when you get on the road, you're sitting there, you know, yelling at everyone, cussing everyone out, doing this and do that. Listen, none of us are perfect. Scripture says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So we have no place to be a hypocrite. It's a shame that in the church we kind of feel like we have to be because we, we're going to be judged if we don't pretend like we have it all together. A church is a lot like a small town. You know, a small town, everyone pretends that they don't have problems, right? Because they know if they acknowledge they have problems, everyone's going to talk about them, <laughs> right? And so that's what we do in, in, in church. We, we pretend to have it all together, but we don't. And that's why I'll always pick it out of myself, and I'll always, like, try to point out even my own, like, failings, because, listen, the higher that pedestal is, the harder that fall is on the way down. There's no place for hypocrites in church because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are more deserving or any deserving of heaven than the next, because none of us are. 
Another form of godliness in the church, it appears to be good, but it's not, is what I would say, false prophets and teachers. And, and this is a big one today, but it's nothing new in the church. Look at Jeremiah 23, 16. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. Don't listen to the prophets. For they are filling you with false hope. Because they're speaking visions from their own minds and not from the mouth of the Lord. This is huge in the church today, especially in America, especially in the South, especially in Pentecostal-type churches, also a pretty good smattering of it in non-denominational churches, especially amongst televangelists. I get this all the time, you know, I can't tell you how many times people have come up with a word of the Lord for me. From, and I've told these stories in the past from like my last year in seminary, someone given me a prophetic word for how ministry was going to be, and it couldn't have been the exact opposite of what he said. Um, to, you know, people telling me that the Lord spoke to him that we should do communion different. I mean, whatever. People do that is a way to control the conversation. People do that because they can't differentiate between their voice, their mind, their thoughts, and God's. Listen, if you would have thought of it on your own, God didn't need to tell you. And that's your thought, which may or may not be valid. It's when you think and say things that you're like, where'd that just come from? And then, then you might either see a psychiatrist or start paying some attention, right? Some of the people that nowadays are abusing with that, you can, Benny Hinn, don't question me, I'm the Lord's anointed. Kenneth Copeland, God's constantly talking to him. And Todd White's another big one in the area. Listen, I, I know that it's not looked favorably upon to pick on the body of Christ, but it is. Because we're told that in the final days, there's going to be, who is Paul talking about that has a form of godliness but denies his power? It's not the axe murderers. It's not. It's the wolves in sheep's clothing. And Jeremiah says, don't even listen to these prophets because all they're really saying is what they're thinking and they're declaring it's coming from the mouth of God. Another form of godliness that the power is being denied in today's world is liberal Christianity. And this is a huge one. This one isn't, you know, I'm not beating up on non-denoms or Pentecostals. I mean, this goes across church spectrum. This isn't a big one in non-denoms. There's going to be another one that I'm going to cover. Is this, is, this is more established Christianity that has this problem. Uh, the Episcopalians have gone through it. The Lutherans have gone through it. Uh, the Presbyterians have gone through it. Just about all major denominations have gone through it. And now the Methodists are going through it. If you haven't heard, the Methodist church is dividing in two um, from what has been always the United Methodist Church to now the more conservative group is going to be global Methodist church. 
And what are they dividing over? Well, they're dividing over culture and Christianity. They're dividing over whether or not like LGBTQ should be embraced in the church. Now, I had someone ask me uh, just this past week, well, why, why do you talk about it so often? Well, because it's in the news every single day and you're told every day it's fine and normal when the church doesn't remind everyone it's not. Guess what? You have a church now dividing because they think it's okay. The church won't touch these social issues, and therefore the church follows them. I was speaking to someone from a very large Methodist church um, in, uh, in South Lake, and she's, uh, she, she's well-connected over there, let's just put it that way. And in a conversation I had with her, and as she was explaining to me what's going on in the Methodist church and that they're staying with the, with the liberal group, she said, you know, now that we understand Scripture more and, and we understand, like, the Greek and this and this, that, we know things like, and this is her exact words, that when Jesus healed the centurion's servant, the servant was really homosexual. I'm like, where do you get that from? Where do you get that from the Greek? Where do you get that from the original language? I mean, where do you get that from 2,000 years later? Because honestly, except for the last five minutes, this wasn't even an issue in Christianity. Liberal Christian churches are going to be the ones that are very traditional. They're going to have the, the pastors dressed in all the vestments and all the robes. Um, they're they're going to have, you know, the, the more formal church. Why? Because if your teachings aren't Christian, if it doesn't, like, look and smell and taste like Christian, what is Christian about it? So that's the interesting thing about liberal Christianity. Even though their teachings have rejected the Bible um, outwardly, visibly, it's a form of godliness, right? We see this throughout history as, you know, is a form of Christianity, but it's not at all. The next one is, I use the word social ministries because that's just how I was raised, but that's not what social means nowadays. So um, for, for your sake, let's call it helping ministries. Now, Jesus commanded us as the church to go into, uh, you know, feed the hungry, um, to, to clothe the naked, to visit the sick and, and, and the imprisoned and, and so forth. He's told the church to do all these things. But I, I think it was like around the nine, early 1900s, um, Christianity almost like split. It's like there was a group that became really good at this, but then they kind of minimized the teachings. And that's how you get all these things where they don't really care what the teachings say because this form of godliness is what's important. And this is a form of godliness. Listen, God tells us we should do it. But the churches that rejected that, the people who rejected the scriptures basically and did this, they tended to just focus on the teaching. Now, honestly, it needs to be both, right? You need to care about the teaching, but then you also need to be serving those who are least amongst us. But I'll hear all the time, hey, I go to this church, and this church is active doing this in the community, this and that. And that's what causes people to want to go to that, because they feel good about that, and they should, because it's what we should be doing. But it's just a form of godliness, but they deny its power because their teachings stink. Can you get into heaven by good works? The answer is no. You can't. Can a church be acceptable to God by good works? No, it can't. A church is just a bunch of people. If it doesn't work for people, it doesn't work for church. But this is where we get drawn in because it has a form of godliness. 
This next one is a big one, and it's, it's, more, it's, it's predominant in more modern denominational churches like ours, but this is a real big one for um, non-denom churches, and that is they become man-centered ministries and theologies rather than God-centered. Think about it. If you go into a 100, 150-year-old, especially Catholic church, is that church built for the comfort of man? Have you ever been in one? I heard one or two of you say, yeah, Matt's like, yeah. Is it built for the comfort of man, Matt? No. Who's it built for? The glory of God, really, right? I mean, you have like, everything's ornate. Amazing altars. Um, amazing paintings. Uh, huge uh, pipe organ. Um, just a ton of wealth and, and money put into it to give glory to God. They sit on wooden benches. It's not for the comfort of man. Because the church has been built for the glory of God. Now listen, evangelicals, which we are, criticize that because it's like, you know, couldn't you be putting your money somewhere else? There's starving people in Africa, there's this, there's that, you know, stop spending a gazillion dollars on this, this, and that. Fair. But yet, Jesus was okay with the expensive perfume being poured on his feet, so it's also fair to honor God. You go to the biggest, most successful non-denom churches, and it ain't built to the glory of God. It's built to the comfort of man. It, it, it just is. Huge stage, like four or five times bigger than ours, so you can give you the best performance possible. Chairs a lot more comfortable than ours. They don't, like, just have, like, a little free coffee bar. They got, like, a place that you can buy Starbucks-quality coffee. You look up, and it looks like a, a, a ski resort. They might even have a nice bookstore. You see the difference? One is built for the glory of God, and one is built for the comfort of man. But we don't come to church for man. We come for God. And we kind of try to play that line both ways here. I'm not selling my books in a bookstore. never will, right? We do have some nice coffee. It's free, but the amenities beyond that are somewhat limited. We, we do. Sometimes it's lit up a stained glass there. So, I mean, we just, yeah. But then even the teachings in these places have become about man. Take something like the Lord's Supper. In a church in which it's the glory of God, what they're emphasizing is my blood and my body shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. It's what God's giving you. But if you're more one to the glory of man, it's do this in remembrance of me. Now, both of those are in Scripture, but what's more important? I mean, you got to have both. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, one emphasizes this and one emphasizes the other. And when you're emphasizing uh, man, that, that's, that's, it's not that it, it, it shouldn't be a part of it. That's not where I want all my eggs. And you even take baptism. 
Baptism in, in a church that's more focused on the glory of man. Baptism's your decision for, for Christ. It's where you choose to be a, a child of, of Christ. And for the more God-centered, it's to emphasize what Scripture says is that we're baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That's what God does. And to receive the Holy Spirit, that's what God does. Kids don't get to choose their parents, do they? The parent chooses to have the kids. Now listen, there needs to be a balance, and I get beat up by, you know, other Lutheran pastors because they see us as very man-centered. There's a a time and place to talk about how we feel about God and and, and giving God our best and so forth, and and that's part of the faith. But that's not the only part of the faith. And and so you got to keep it God-centered and it not be about man or the comforts of man. And then the last one. This one's been around for a while. Prosperity gospel. It has a form of godliness. They they talk about Jesus. They talk about God and the power of God. But then they really spend a lot of time talking about that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and happy. And it's not that you can't find a passage or two, a handful of passages in Scripture that will speak that way, but the vast majority of Scripture, it talks about denying yourself. It talks about foregoing the the pleasures and the treasures in this life for the life that's to come. It talks about losing your life for him, and if you're willing to lose it, you'll receive it. That, that passage I read to you on, on like spiritual authority, if you, you have to first be a servant. You, you, know, you, you have to be a slave if you want to be great. It, it's not about this, this place of honor and, and, and th- that we make it. It's a form of godliness, but the power is denied. Here's the here's the thing that you guys got to get. There's nothing more important within Christianity than what I've just, especially the last 20 minutes, been talking to you about. If you had a loved one who had cancer and was potentially dying of cancer, would you want them going to someone that is into, like, um like salt crystals and alternative forms of healing? No, I don't think you'd want that for your loved one. Because you know it's not going to turn out that well. And you'd probably be riding your sister, your brother, your parent, your child, and insisting that they stop doing that. How many of us have loved ones who are maybe going to a church where sin is a whole lot more serious than cancer, and that church has a form of godliness but really denies its power. Listen, don't hear me say, hey, we got it all together. You need to some... I got my problems. This church got its problems, and John Elvis is in the back, and we all know he has his problems, right? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, like, we recognize our problems, and, and we're not hypocrites. And we're not falling into these perversions of Christianity that so many other churches have because, honestly, it puts butts in seats. 
and it makes us feel good about ourselves and, and others when maybe we shouldn't. The next sermon series I'm going to do is just going to be a three-week sermon series, but it's going to be about, like, sharing the faith. Now more than ever, it's not just show up at any church that's on the corner, that in the last days there could be so many Christians and so many churches, and I put those in quotes, you know, that have a form of godliness but deny its power. And for those of us in here who at least know better, then why aren't we telling others about that? And maybe it's your grandma that goes to church somewhere in Montana. I don't mean this to be self-serving at all. This isn't about, hey, bring them to the light of the world. It's about making people aware of what is a form of godliness, but actually is no godliness at all. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious Almighty God, we just thank and praise you for this morning. To be able to conclude this message series and to have a heart-to-heart on what faith has become, especially in this country, but really in this whole world. I just pray, gracious God, that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear. And that not only you would give us the courage to uh, share this truth um, to people who don't know you, but maybe even especially to those who think that they do. Give us courage through the power of your, your spirit to speak and to be able to, um, to help other people to, to know your truth and by that truth that they would be set free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.